This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hello and welcome back to Oh God What Now, the politics podcast that's got a face like thunder and is agile like a cat. I'm Alex Andreu. Coming up today, this is the way it ends, not with a bang but with a whimper. Johnson is down and out, the ERG resistance of the Stormont break failed to impress, and backbench Tory rebellions over the illegal migration bills have fizzled out. Is Sunak beginning to impose himself? Also, the demise of Megabrain. How did Dominic Cummings travel from the power behind the throne to irrelevant substack heckler in the space of two years? We analyse the fall and fall of the superspad. And as France continues to be rocked by protests, how valid is it to expect decades of retirement? And why has Macron failed so spectacularly to make the case for reform? With me today, I have the host of Doomsday Watch and the author of How Britain Broke the World, Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hi, Alex. Also with us, I reporter and columnist, Hannah Fern. Hello, Hannah. Hello, hello. And completing the all-star lineup, it's Time magazine's Yasmin Sirhan. Hi, Yasmin. Hi there. It's a packed show, so with just a tiny pause to tell you not to forget Ian Dunt live on Zoom for Patreon people this Thursday on Podcasters Question Time. Sign up if you haven't already. Let's dive straight into the news. Last week looked like a power shift in the Tory party. Just don't ask me from where to where. As Boris Johnson slumped, sulked and finger-jabbed in front of the Privileges Committee, Rishi Sunak shepherded the Windsor framework through Parliament with considerable ease. The rebellion was pitifully small compared to the ERG's glory days, especially considering the endorsement of such luminaries as Johnson himself, Liz Truss, Priti Patel and Mark Francois. (laughs) On Monday, Theo Clark, one of the MPs deselected by executive committees in what was seen as a pro-Johnson fightback, was re-adopted by her association. So the great deselection tally currently stands at a paltry two. Hannah, is this a permanent shift in the centre of gravity, or has Sunak's whipping operation simply proved itself more adept at horse trading? I'm not sure we can say yet that Sunak is a better politician and is doing a better job of of controlling his party. I think there's more to it than that. Uh, Obviously, the embarrassment of Boris last week is part of it. There is this desperate need for calm to prevent the complete collapse of this this government. Um, There is a sense, I think, that Sunak is being given the space to take that control and to try and stabilise the situation. In fact, there's some polling out today from YouGov, which seems to demonstrate that point. Um, It's polling about the uh, small boats policy and how people feel about it. Will it work? And also whether they support it. So um, when you look at Conservative voters specifically, Uh 26% uh, think it will work, but 73% support it. So uh. that means that there, in fact, we worked out um, earlier that, that 48% uh, of, of those who um, support it think it won't work, but they still minimum, support it. Minimum, that's a minimum. As a minimum, yeah. it's a minimum. So that's, um, you know, on best measure. So it means that there's a large percentage here who really either feel it doesn't work because it's not strong enough so they don't they don't you know they don't really um uh support it in its fullest sense they they wish it was stricter they wish it was um had 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 more a kind of aggressive uh, stance to it but um they're willing to give him a go they mm. just want to see their party succeed at something so uh, yeah that's one reading of that poll. <laughs> I mean, another reading is that they just like being mean to brown people, <laughs> even when there's no reason. So you may coexist. Um, there is now a widespread public view in every single poll for many months that Brexit was a bad idea and that it was handled ineptly. Ditto with the almost anarcho-capitalist trasonomics experiment. Has this weakened those Tory factions and strengthened Sunak, actually? So I think 
the two things are slightly different in that trussonomics, or whatever we want to call it, disasteronomics, mm. that's no surprise that people felt that it was the wrong approach because ultimately people felt it tangibly. Mm. Immediately there are effects on the economy. Immediately mortgages cost more and so on. It's taken years for Brexit to be felt in the same way, but now we are at that point. So what does this mean for Sunak and the party right now? I think ultimately he's almost the best of a bunch of bad options for the ERG and the Brexiteers now because he Sunak is a Brexiteer at heart and mm. he does still support a, 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 a Europe um, which doesn't involve Britain. Um, whereas the alternative increasingly could be an opposition that wants fully back in. I think that's not um, an unrealistic prospect yeah, now. Yeah. Yasmin, it's popcorn time for us ERG watchers. Um, they have apparently ejected hard man Steve Baker for voting with the government on the Windsor framework. He responded by removing members from the official ERG WhatsApp group. Um, has politics always been so small behind the scenes or is the smallness of politics simply easier to reveal now because of technology? <laughs> I mean, I'm personally here for all the pettiness. I think it's <laughs> hilarious. Um, I mean, I think politics has always been terribly petty. I think a combination of WhatsApp and, and even Twitter have have done a great job at highlighting just how petty it can be. Um, with regard to the ERG, th though, I think it you know it, it crucially highlights just how divided I think they are, and um, that the fact that they don't have either a unifying cause or or indeed much of an animating figure to get behind to Hannah's point just now. And, and I think it also, you know, you look back to the heyday of the ERG that, I mean, there was a time where they could put up a hundred MPs and sort of march them through a division lobby of their choosing. Um, and if you exclude the DUP vote from the other day, they could only scrounge up what 22 MPs to vote against the Stormont break. So, you know, the era of the once mighty ERG seems to be over. Um, my, my favorite bit about all of this, though, um, this whole saga with the WhatsApp groups is that according to the Telegraph, there are reportedly four ERG WhatsApp groups. So one for ERG officers, one for grandees, one for Brexit uh, MPs, and one for wider <laughs> outreach. And that last one is the one that Steve Baker was um, reportedly ejected from. But he is the admin of the third one. So expelling him is probably going to be a lot harder there. But it just reminds me of how, you know, there's always a friends group, but then there is that one friend group chat where it's excluding the one friend. Mm. I do not know if this exists, which means that I'm probably the one friend that's been excluded. But like, I don't have personal experience with this, but this is, yes, yeah, so it's, it's all terribly petty. But I think it's also the kind of last gasp in a way of, of a group that is probably finding itself um, less relevant than it once was. Yeah. I mean, it's parish council stuff, isn't it? It's Jackie Weaver throwing people out of the Zoom. Does the fact that so few MPs rode behind Johnson on the Stormont break does that bode badly for his chances if the committee recommends a long suspension? Or is that a totally separate I, I mean, I, I, I'm always really hesitant to kind of declare the end of Johnson because I think as we've seen, he, he always, he, he has quite a knack for making a comeback. But, but I do think that, that it does bode pretty poorly. I mean, I think that paired with the lack of many Johnson boosters at his committee hearing that seemed to suggest that, you know, whatever appeal that he held over the party, um, if not, you know, among his colleagues and certainly among the membership, that that might be waning just a bit. Um, and, and I think Tanya Gold actually said it best in Politico. She said Johnson is an, an embarrassment now. Um, they will throw him overboard for a percentage point when the committee paused, you know, and then she talked about how, you know, only 22 out of the 354 Tory MPs followed him. You know, this is how he departs. So after that performance, it's kind of hard to see. I feel like he's lost kind of the shine that he had, um, whether he maintains it with members, I don't know, but it feels like his colleagues have sort of come around to the fact that the game is up for him. Arthur, could a by-election in, in Axbridge really be in the offing? If an election is only a year away and everything about the policy announcements at the moment feels like spring 2024 might be the election, um, why would the Tories sign themselves up for a sort of defeat that would sap their morale even further? Well, I think you've kind of answered your own question now. I, I can't see it happening. Um, I think for two reasons. One is, obviously, 
the the level of sanction that Johnson is likely to get it has to be it has to be above the ten day exclusion, doesn't it, from the from the House, and then and then they can run a local local kind of referendum effectively to see if there will then be a by election. So that's quite a lot of hurdles. I mean, let's face it: if they run a local thing, um, which I think only needs something like ten or fifteen percent, isn't it, the recall yeah. petition? He, he'll they'll oh, yeah, get they'll that. get that. But it seems to me, um, from both from the sort of commentary I've heard, but also the the degree to which they'll they'll be able to justify uh, that level of sanction, I just think it's very unlikely. And as as you laid out there, there are so many reasons that even though Johnson himself is now clearly not popular and certainly won't be popular with the people running number ten, uh, the, the the hassle factor of losing a by election, which all that does is provides weeks of narrative about the government, um, you know, losing its power, losing its influence. I, I can't see any reason why 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 they would let that happen. One thing that goes against that is just the large number of Tory MPs who have said they won't stand for re-election. They're quite a quite a free radical within this yeah. equation. If they all decide to vote, um, you know, for him being sanctioned, then. It become it only takes another handful really to uh, dump him in it. Johnson insiders reckon that if Labour and the Lib Dems decide to fight hard against each other, they'll they'd be ceding the constituency to Johnson. So could this become quite a useful case study if there is a by election for how progressives might hun- handle difficult seats in the general election? Yeah, I think it would. And and I noticed that the Lib Dems got out of the blocks pretty quickly in announcing their candidate. And frankly, even though I am, I consider myself a Lib Dem, I thought that wasn't particularly wise, because I think it's a seat where it's very clearly it's Labour's to win. I mean, we know that the Lib Dems are by election specialists, but on this particular case where, uh, you know, Labour have really come quite close. I mean, it's one of the most marginal seats ever to be held by a prime minister. So it, it doesn't strike me as very sensible for the Lib Dems to throw a lot at it. Maybe they have no plans to and it was simply, it was a useful opportunity for them to get a bit of publicity at, at a national level, which of course is hard for them to do normally. Mm. Um, Hannah, do we know anything about Danny Beals, Labour's candidate in Johnson's constituency? Yeah, I think he's interesting whether or not there's a by-election, even mm. if we're talking about next oh, yeah, yeah, spring. Yeah. He is an interesting figure. So he's a local guy. He grew up um, in poverty in the area. He he and his mother, um, he had a single mum, were homeless when he was 15 because they lost their, their rented property. And he has since been a local councillor in Camden. Um, he works in health policy. He's gay and he talks about his job um, as head of policy at the um, AIDS Trust. And he's just really strong, particularly in the work he's done as a cabinet member uh, in, in Camden on housing, the rental crisis, cost of living, energy, food poverty. He's sort of the anti-Johnson, he, he is the He's the anti-Johnson, <laughs> but he's bang on the kind of core things that everybody really cares about right yeah. now. And he's got a really strong personal record on those things. Mm. So I think he's a real danger to Johnson if mm. the by-election is called. But actually, a probably, um, you know, person in waiting for next spring, one to watch. Mm. Um, uh, what about the the sort of broad rump of right-wing media, mm. um, both papers and and sort of TV and radio stations, most failed to back Johnson, I thought, with any conviction. Yeah, they you know, that, pulled that, away from... That Daily being, Mail front yeah. page that basically was just the Sarah Vine opinion piece. Mm. You know, I mean, it, it seemed to me that if there was anything that provided the opportunity to say, oh, he's done it, he's, you know, they would have grabbed, they would have grabbed it. Um, so... Yeah. Why is that? They also seem a little bit lukewarm on Sunak, though. It's not like they're rowing behind him in, with any great uh, uh, vociferousness and not yet really attacking Starmer. No, they're very, very mild on Starmer. Yeah, um, I mean, considering what they did to Ed Miliband, I'm not even <laughs> exactly. talking about Corbyn. Although things looked very different then, if you think about where we might be in a year. So you said it yourself just now, the policies that are coming out of 
Starmer's government feel like we're looking at a general election in about exactly 12 months. Mm. We're in the last year of what I think we can all agree is a, is a transition between administrations. And it feels a lot like the last days of major in that sense. Mm. There's a transition now. I think the that rump of, of right-wing media, they are going to need to have some friends in a new government. So they've not been deeply critical of Starmer yet. Um, and I think they will continue to hedge their bets until they make some decisions about um, how to present themselves in the final three months before the general election. I guess it all hinges on whether they think a push from them might... Um, get it over the line, exactly that. Get Sunak that. Yeah. over the line. Yeah. Or... And there's no point being extremely critical of Starmer right now if, in fact, it's so lost mm. they need to kind of find curry some favour at the end. Yasmin, in the last couple of weeks, we have seen a focus from the Sunak government on policies like temporary housing for migrants and boats and nitrous oxide canisters. I mean, is this a pivot to the local elections or, or, or does Sunak genuinely think in a country with food inflation over 18 percent and two million households using food banks that he can win the next general election by banning laughing gas? In fairness and in defense of Sunak, I think you just outlined all the ways in which this country is really in a dire state. It's not really a laughing matter. So people should not have access to laughing gas. No one is laughing. Um, I am kidding. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think this seems to suggest to me at least a desire on the part of Sunak, I think, to appear as though the government is getting something done. I think, you know, going back to that YouGov poll um, from today, and, you know, you, you look at in terms of how well Britons think that the government is doing on things like inflation, on economic growth, on national debt, on the NHS list, on small boats, even their signature issue. They're all resoundingly negative. Um, so I think if you're Sunak and you can't, you know, make meaningful change on the big issues, you at least need to sort of, you know, double down on the theater of getting things done. And whether that's, you know, getting tough on drugs, i.e., laughing gas, um, then then that's what you're going to do. Um, and that's despite the fact that, you know, experts are warning that this is just going to create new costs for the criminal justice system and is actually just going to, you know, have a disproportionate level of harm um, when it comes to creating burdens for people who actually have legitimate use of the substance. So on the whole, I, I think it's just them grasping for things that they can do to make it look like they're getting things done. I mean, the spectacle on Sunday of Michael Gove touring studios, who, by his own admission, has a a checkered history in dabbling <laughs> with substances, you know, promising to create a criminal record for 15-year-olds for sniffing fucking um, whipped cream propellant. It just, it just seems bonkers, the whole thing. OK, well, let's move on to something different now, because also today, Monday, Hamza Youssef, was uh, announced as the new leader of the Scottish National Party with a cursed 52-48 <laughs> ratio uh, over Kate Forbes, who was a close second. Hannah, what do we expect from a Yusuf-led SNP? He has described himself, really, as a continuity candidate. And he joked during his campaign about having Nicola Sturgeon on speed dial. I'm not really sure how much of a joke that is. I think there will be some in his party who will be very pleased by that. And obviously looking at the division of votes, a whole she chunk... Hasn't, she hasn't done be, too, too shabbily by No, <laughs> but there will be some who won't be keen on that mm. relationship. So um, it's, it's an interesting one. What will we expect him to do? I think there's two things. The first is... He's already said that he's going to make another um, request for independence for an independence referendum. Downing Street have already said uh, with the quote, uh, they've already, sorry, responded with the quote, you know our position. So there's clearly no, uh, you know, no chance of that actually re returning a result for him. It's yeah, worth it's, it's, worth it's just have the same conversation, <laughs> just with a different person. See he obviously might. felt like he just needed to say it himself. But so that's obviously his, his core focus. Um, uh, the, the other thing is he will continue one Im imagines he, he committed to the um, pact that, that he has with the Green Party, which means the government still standing coalition government uh, which gives them a slim majority so um, that's what we can ex expect in the 
short term. But yes, the victory is uh, a lot about his, the next steps for him as a victor depend on how he handles Kate Forbes. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, as, as a gay man, I, I have to say I was quite relieved that the, the sure. Scottish National Party didn't pivot in that particular direction. I think um, every yeah. liberal listener would feel the same. Um, does the does the closeness of the vote though augur well for him? I mean, is the SNP has the SNP in the past been quite factional, or do they tend to have their election and get on with it? Well, so in in our sort of short term memory, it's been it's... very very <laughs> um, you know uh, solid uh, unit. But actually, it is a coalition in in itself of you know of disparate views, especially around issues around social issues like we we're just describing and we know obviously it was the gra that in the in the immediate term um marked the end of sturgeon so i think he's going to have a real job holding it together he's talked already about the need to to make sure that he brings harmony to the party and that they focus on their primary goal of independence um he will probably have to give forbes a very senior post in order to do that um and whether or not she accepts it i think will be uh, the indicator of what indication, happens next. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Um, Arthur, which rival parties in Scotland do you think might do well or not do well from this particular outcome? Well, I think basically all of them are going to benefit to some extent. I mean, if you look at the polls just in the last year, Labour um, have benefited about 10 points in, in the kind of polling of polls. Um, uh, and the SNP has been dropping quite sharply, but even the Tories have started to see a bit of improvement in their their um, their numbers. And um, of course, the the fairly intemperate nature of this campaign, this leadership campaign, with Kate Forbes basically pointing out that Hamza Yusuf's record, particularly in health, you know, health outcomes in Scotland are pretty awful. And it's one of the sort of biggest arguments against the SNP that you, you've had power for so long. Uh, and and you keep saying that you, you want to run the country yourselves and you do a better job. But actually, public services in Scotland are not good at all. It's good news for all opposition parties. But let's not forget that the SNP still have a commanding lead in the poll, albeit one that, that is, you know, dropping fast. Yasmin, Sturgeon had acted as a sort of constant reminder of what professional governance look, looks like, at least to me, you know, often in stark contrast with Downing Street. Whatever one thinks of her politics, she was not a joker. You know, she was, she was a serious person, a serious politician, and an incredibly effective communicator. Um, at a time when, you know, we, we had a farce going on in Downing Street, um, what might the effect of her absence be on UK politics more widely? Yeah, so, I mean, you don't get to being the longest serving first minister, I think, without having that level of competence. And crucially, I think that level of popularity, um, though, as, as Arthur noted, that the, the S&P's popularity um, has been declining. But but I think, you know, compared to other UK leaders, she has by far enjoyed far more support. Um, and I, yeah, I think she's a larger than life figure. And I think, you know, all the candidates that were vying to replace her were going to struggle to match that. Um, I think in part because based on the polling that I saw during the contest, none of them seemed even remotely as popular as she is. Um, of course, you know, I think Yusuf Spackers would be the first to tell you that he is not Nicola. Uh, that was the exact wording I think that Ian Blackford uh, gave me when I was asking him about this. He was a Yusuf backer. Um, you know, he's he's probably going to have a bigger, more delicated team than Sturgeon did. How it changes the way he works within the wider UK system I'm not so sure. I mean, I think the big test is obviously going to be the next general election. And as we've been discussing, the extent to which he can unify the party. I think one thing that is worth highlighting just while we're talking about this campaign, though, of course, is the historic nature of it. I mean, it was always going to be historic in a way because, you know, if Kate Forbes had won, she would have been the youngest ever first minister and obviously, you know, a social conservative, which would have been a, a marked shift, I think, for the party's progressive direction. But Yusuf is is not only the first ethnic minority leader, but he's also the first Muslim leader. But I think it's also worth noting um, that, you know, for the first time, I think, ever, we, we're, we're now in a situation where the leaders of Ireland the wider UK and Scotland are all of South Asian origin, mm. which is quite yeah, it's a uh, moment. Quite something to just yeah. remark yeah. at. 
Yeah, it is. And, and I think it's, you know, it's, it's one that given what's, what's been such a divisive and acrimonious campaign, it's probably easy to overlook that, but it is quite a big moment. Um, and it's worth kind of stepping back. Whether that helps him wider, <laughs> in wider UK politics, I'm not so sure, but it would be something if you could say that, you know, all leaders of South Asian origin were able to, you know, solve the Northern Irish backstop issue. And I don't know. Well, <laughs> sure. we'll see. We'll see how they get yeah, on. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, that I, I seem to recall Sturgeon was had a higher popularity rating than any of three UK prime four UK prime ministers that she sort of went up against, um, even in the wider UK. Mm. So, so even people in England and Wales thought more of her than they did of, say, Johnson at his lower ebb. <laughs> Now, let's move on to something different again. The Trust Resignations Honour List um, was announced on Friday. <laughs> it contains only four names, yeah. but they are not uncontroversial, I think it's fair to say. Johnson's, incredibly, is still to come. Is the case for Lord's reform becoming quite irresistible, actually? Might it prove a bit of a vote winner for Starmer? I don't know whether you could go as far as to say irresistible. But it's certainly become palatable. Mm. We've got to thank Trust for that. I think, you know, the idea that you can, four people is not actually an insignificant number when you think about the number of days. It's almost one yeah. per 10 day stint. Yeah. Um, so it, it has, it's almost akin to the, the monarchy, I think. For you, as, as, um, British people, we are quite resistant to change of these structures that you know that control how how mm. we um, we we live, our governance, uh, and for you know decades and decades, there has not been a majority, and 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 there still isn't, but there has been, there definitely would never be a majority arguing that the monarchy should you know be either slimmed down or, or 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 got rid of entirely but the queen's death was a bit of a watershed and now there's more of a discussion and mm. there's a the percentages in terms of how, what people believe about slimmer monarchy or a different type of monarchy or no monarchy are shifting on the lords you know for the first time complete abolition of lords i think is is palatable mm. and there's and and there's also definitely a huge case for reform about how we're putting these people in there and boris you mentioned his list is still upcoming the main question everybody's thinking about is is his dad going to be on there um i suspect not because it'll take some soundings on how phenomenal or Dacre, that. <laughs> yeah, apparently or Dacre. on there again I mean, again. Oh, God. I just, that makes me shudder. But, um, you know, yeah, who's going to be on there? That's interesting. But wh whoever's on there, again, the idea that everything we've been through in the last few weeks with him, that how he, how discredited he is as an individual, that he is still throwing names out um, to just make his cronies uh, lords, to give them all these privileges, the financial benefits that come with that, the power, the control. Um, yeah, I think that uh, it, while it's not irresistible, it's definitely moving towards more likely than not. Mm. I mean, to see some of the mega brains that basically caused the financial meltdown that brought down her premiership being rewarded mm. with a peerage is, I think, um, the ultimate expression of failing upwards, it seems to me. <laughs> Arthur, uh, looking a little further afield, protests in Israel, they've reached a sort of fever pitch. There were reports on Monday morning that Netanyahu was about to pause his judicial reform program. Journalists were literally poised for a press conference that then never came because apparently far-right members of his coalition threatened to resign from the cabinet. Is there an off-ramp for him at all? It's not obvious what it is because he's, he's caught now between two uh, sort of conflicting groups obviously that you he fired his defense minister who was against the reforms and then you've got the ones who 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 want this to go forward and this is it reminds me in some respects of the way that that brexit became this impossibility that for conservative leaders not that one had much sympathy for them that you know you could push for the hardest of hard brexits to satisfy one group of your of your party but but at that point you 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 were you were trying to enact something that was impossible in international law you know or or required you know unicorns to 
prance across the uh, Irish border. And and I think, you know, Netanyahu has slightly got himself into this kind of situation where he's trying to carry out something that is flagrantly unconstitutional, but he's then raised the expectations among the hardliners that that will be an outcome. So, yeah, it's not clear wh- where, where this ends up. But I mean, the size of the protests, I'm sure people have seen these 700,000 people, 6% of the population of the country yeah, on the it's street. It's extraordinary. Absolutely incredible. Yasmin? I mean, I think it, just to jump in on that, because I can't help myself, I, I think it, it also, it's just worth underscoring the fact that like Netanyahu kind of signed, not to call Smotrich or, or Ben Gavira the devil, but like kind of signed a deal with the devil when he made this coalition yeah. agreement. He knew exactly who he was getting into coalition yeah. with. And he did it for, you know, ideological, but also self-interest um, reasons. And and I think he's he's definitely backed himself into this corner where no matter where he moves, I think he's he's kind of, this is obviously a very long time serving Israeli prime minister who's been able to come back again and again, but he's putting himself in a position where if he responds to the protests, he's going to lose his government. He's not in charge. The far yeah. right is. Um, but by that same token, if if he does decide to press ahead, he may be pushing the country into a state of civil war or worse. Um, so yeah, it's it's pretty surreal to see that you know, I think just over the years, you've obviously heard Netanyahu talk about all these threats to Israel, internal and external. It turns out it may just be him. Yeah, and 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 it's it is quite an extraordinary, I think, uh, um, lesson for the world that you know sometimes constantly tacking towards the the ever more extreme elements uh, that are on your side, uh, it runs out of road. Right, there comes a point when opposition becomes so vehement and the thing that you've promised so impossible to deliver that you have a you have an unsolvable equation um now yasmin donald trump um hooted and hollered last week about his impending arrest um are, are we in for more disappointment this week what happened well, Alex, it wouldn't be the first time that he's usually very reliable, isn't he? <laughs> uh, fool me once. Yeah. Um, th- I mean, look, the latest I've seen on this is that the New York grand jury that is investigating Trump over the hush money payments that he made to the adult film star Stormy Daniels is back at work today and hearing more evidence as to whether this panel is actually going to be asked to vote on a possible indictment um, remains unclear. Um, One of Trump's lawyers actually admitted over the weekend that Trump's unfounded remarks about his imminent arrest were based on mere speculation prompted by quote unquote rumors. So, I, I mean, you know, the, the short answer is, I think, yes, you're probably in for more disappointment. And and I think, you know, looking back um, and, and sort of taking a step back, I think one could be forgiven for thinking that perhaps Trump is really just using this prospect of his arrest to galvanize his base of supporters, especially as he's kicking off his presidential bid for 2024. Um, as my former colleague at The Atlantic, Elaine Godfrey, wrote in a great dispatch from Waco, Texas, where Trump had his rally over the weekend, um, she wrote, Trump has seemed almost giddy at the prospect of an indictment, reportedly musing with aides about how he might behave during a potential perp walk. Um, so, I mean, that really just tells you all you need to know. Um Finally, the U.S. and Canada have signed a deal to turn back asylum seekers at the border. Um, the, this this gives me a, a, a tingle in my spidey sense because for a very long time I've thought that the liberal consensus in the, in the U.K. that that this government's action on refugees will turn us into an international pariah ignores the the possibility that actually turns it into an international paradigm um, because there are a lot of people as numbers surge that are looking to dismantle that entire framework. What do you think? Yes, I think it's worth just for some context here. What's what's being changed, I guess, is since 2004, there's something called the Safe Third Country Agreement, STCA. And that has basically forced asylum seekers to make claims for protection in the first country that they arrive in. So whether that's the U.S. or Canada, that means that people who arrived in the U.S. could not then subsequently make an asylum claim in Canada and vice versa. Um, and it allowed border authorities to basically turn people back to you know whichever country they landed in first. 
But asylum seekers could make claims for protection once on Canadian soil, basically through a loophole that if they went through like informal routes. So once they got there, they can make the claim. What this new deal does is meant to basically turn back to, to basically stop that loophole, to close it. It's a little bit small boat crossings, though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think certainly to your point, the UK is not an exception here. I think the unfortunate truth is that many countries, including liberal democracies like the US and Canada, are going to greater lengths to tighten their borders. I mean, how much this is influenced by trying to keep the far right at bay, I don't know, though. It's my understanding that uh, the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has been under a lot of domestic political pressure to respond to the increase in crossings, particularly from conservative politicians in Quebec and at the federal level. So, uh, you know, I think one issue that we kind of have to grapple with is that unlawful immigration is unfortunately an issue that seems to to, to either be pushed by the far right and then thus forces even more mainstream governments to kind of follow suit, but also that it's something that resonates with wider swaths of the electorate. So yeah, unfortunately, I think that the UK isn't um, alone in this. I think this is something we may see more and more. Now, one of the striking things last week was the quality of Johnson media proxies, or lack thereof. He's down to eccentrics like Dorries, Fabricant, Moylan and Greenhow. Um, if those are the first tier character witnesses, I'd hate to see the reserve bench. <laughs> and then there is Dominic Cummings, the super dry golem who has turned <laughs> from fervent advocate to arch nemesis after very publicly packing his things and departing number 10. But how did Cummings go from political mega brain with his hands so firmly gripping the number 10 steering wheel, he felt secure enough to shout abuse at MPs in the Commons corridors to irrelevant blogger? from Johnson's right hand to being singled out by the former PM in front of the committee as a disgruntled liar? And why do we have a system which promoted such an inconsequential person to the top in the first place? Arthur, even though he's out of his position of power, Cummings still exercises weird fascination and his substack pronouncements get traction. Why is this? Why does he still haunt the Tory party? I think he he is firmly within a certain rather specific cultural archetype, which is the sort of tech bro libertarian. I think whilst people who what you what you might call sort of mainstream political nerds, many of whom may, might be listeners to this podcast, look at Cummings and they just see this absurd, flawed person who's who's clearly you know, a, a bit of a nutcase. That there, there is a different sort of person who is very interested in reading long Substack pieces about, you know, the DARPA and what it was doing in the nineteen seventies and the and the you know how NASA was set up and all that kind of stuff. I think he's just got a very specific audience which he likes to keep sort of hammering away at. He has a reputation as a sort of Rasputin of the Brexit years. He also claims to have been instrumental in taking Johnson down. Are we credit him? Are we crediting him too much uh, influence or too well, little? He he certainly he did a very good job of uh, making people believe that Brexit was basically thanks to his own particular brand of genius. Um, and whilst clearly, you know, a lot of that is thanks to him, for example, being a major source for Tim Shipman's book, uh, I think we have to accept that in certain ways... He is very expert. He seems to be very good at running campaigns. Uh, he was responsible for bringing in a lot of online targeted advertising, which to this day we don't really know the impact of, but it was a huge amounts of money were spent on it by Vote Leave. Uh, so you have to assume that it did have an impact. He has the right to claim some credit for, for the success of the Brexit campaign, which, of course, you know, let's not forget, none of the conventional wisdom had them winning. Now, bringing Johnson down, no, Johnson brought himself down, didn't he? That, and he's done that in every job that Boris Johnson has ever held. He's destroyed it himself because he can't keep his dick in his pants and he can't tell the truth. And, and it's usually a combination of those factors uh, and, and just being a fundamentally dishonest person. Is, you know, that, that's what, that was what spelled the end for Johnson. Is it actually testament to Cummings' influence uh, that much of the partying seemed to happen after he left, and some of it because he <laughs> left. Um, do, does every government need a bit of a Malcolm Tucker figure 
Well, he, he, yeah, he certainly he ruled by fear. And of course, there were people who left um, under circumstances that uh, suggested he was uh, capable of being deeply unpleasant. Um, and, and you know, there were, there were those briefings that you'd get. It was always rather amusing because he would, um, that the, it would leak that he was telling people, if this leaks, you're fired. And then you'd read it on Twitter anyway. So, uh, you know, but he would, he would have that. I think he'd had those sort of Friday night, um, you know, that, what, what's that phrase? That the beatings will continue until morale improves. And I think that was his approach <laughs> to management. <laughs> Hannah, uh, Johnson told the Privileges Committee that Cummings has every reason to lie, (laughs) which apparently Johnson doesn't. Um, (laughs) Is the bigger problem that Cummings is telling the truth, actually, on this? I mean, I think, yes, he's much more likely to be telling (laughs) the truth. Are we quite scared of saying that as people who just despise him? Yes, he's a grotesque figure. Uh, everything um, that Arthur just said, you know, he clearly uh, doesn't inspire, um, you know, much happiness in those sitting around him at a table when they're trying to work. But I do think it's much more likely that he's telling the truth. He hasn't actually got a reason to lie about this in in the way that Johnson does. Mm. You know, Johnson's trying to save his own face. Cummings already, if you think about his motivation, he, he went through that embarrassment. And when he thought he could prop up Johnson's government when he thought it was savable and he thought it was the right thing to do. He went through the humiliation of that Rose Garden press conference. He did it until it couldn't be done any longer. And then having been humiliated in that way, I mean, in my view, rightly so, he broke the rules. But uh, and knowing what he does know about Johnson personally and how all the things going on um, behind closed doors. No wonder he's furious and just wants to tell everyone. I'm, I don't really understand why Boris thinks anyone's going to buy the the line that mm. this is a lie. The, uh, the only people reading his substack are basically journalists who then spin it out into articles of their own and tweets of their own. And that sort of continues the cycle of columnists largely talking to themselves. Mm. Is is the continued relevance of Cummings a a symptom of a wider problem in Westminster reporting? Well, Westminster reporting is definitely a shadow of what it used to be. Mm. Huge cuts to both national and local journalism. There aren't the numbers in the lobby anymore um, to do the kind of detailed reporting that many journalists would like to be doing. It's not that everyone enjoys the, mm. what, what the, the um, trade has become in many ways. The Substack culture, I think, is really interesting as well. If you think about where how people can earn money for writing and how they can build a career, it used to be that if you attached yourself to a national title like the Daily Mail, the Telegraph, the Guardian, and, and built a career with them, you would have a, you know, a reliable income. You could develop yourself as an yeah. individual. That's not the case given the cuts. You know, the job instability is, is extremely high in journalism now, and many are finding that taking that control over their own careers and using something like Substack in which you can monetize your own work much more rewarding. I think of Duncan Weldon, who was once Newsnight's economics correspondent, an incredibly intelligent, clever man with a lot to say. He has completely stepped back from using the traditional channels and runs his career through Substack now. And I think that is actually an indictment of the British press, that he can make more money being an independent economics commentator than he can being a correspondent for one of our major titles. Mm. That's That's a sign of a broken press, and I think it's a shame. Yasmin, on the on the civil service, Cummings said, and I quote, the truth is it repeatedly treats junior people shamefully, cannot keep young talent, and has many people in senior management with no talent or moral courage. I mean, setting aside the irony of someone who, you know, helped Johnson to the throne, the the personification of no talent or moral courage is part of the problem with culture in Whitehall that it mirrors Westminster in rewarding just the loudest peacocks instead of talent and courage. I mean, if if memory serves, I don't remember Dominic Cummings being a particular defender of Whitehall when he was, um, or the civil service when when he was in Downing Street. So it it was a bit, I was a bit confused, I must admit, when I read that because I wasn't sure what, you know, where that was coming from. I, I I think some context, and I, I must admit, I don't actually read Dominic Cummings' Substack. I don't pay for it. But um, he did claim that 
Boris Johnson had escaped being fined for a party he hosted while punishments were doled out to more junior female employees. And in that respect, I think, you know, as someone who who doesn't know, like follow Whitehall as closely, I, I think that's certainly, there's certainly something to that, this notion that, you know, if, if you want to compel your best and brightest to come work for government, having an example where the prime minister, the person who makes the laws gets off scot-free, well, to an extent, obviously, he's in front of this committee, um, whereas the junior people are, are taking the flack and getting the fines, um, I, I don't think that's particularly attractive at all. And, and of course, you're then you know, going to have people who self-select out of that sort of thing. And, and you're left with whoever's left, whoever thinks, oh, yeah, I'll try. Yeah. Uh, one of the leaked Hancock messages to Rishi Sunak reads, of all the bonkerness about Dom's circus, the one I enjoy most is that he's doing this to secure his place at the heart of a future Sunak administration. In the ensuing conversation, Sunak describes the Johnson Cummings era as a nightmare I hope we never, ever have to repeat. Do you think there is a comeback route for Cummings? <laughs> for, for the sake of all of us, and including, I include Dem, um Benedict Cumberbatch in that, because I'm guessing he wouldn't fancy a reprising <laughs> role. Um, I'm going to say no. I, I don't think there is. I mean, who would have him? I mean, it, it's just, you know, Bo Bo Boris Johnson was willing to have him. Now Boris Johnson can't stand him. It's just hard to imagine that anyone would be crazy enough to. Yeah. To and I think, I think we should remember that the reason that Boris Johnson had Dominic Cummings was very specific because Boris Johnson's unbelievably lazy and has no actual idea of what he wants to do as prime minister except have the job. And Cummings was a uniquely useful person to take that role, uh, you know, just basically do the job for him, be prime minister in all but name. And, and, and no other prime minister is going to want to do that. All other prime ministers want the job because they're obsessed about wielding power. Now, it's a well-trodden stereotype that when the British government proposes something that will make our lives worse, we sigh and go back to buttering our scones. When the French government does the same, the French take it as a challenge to remove as many paving slabs from the street of Paris as possible and throw them through shop windows. The latest unrest in the French capital is a result of the proposed raising of the state pension age by Emmanuel Macron. Strikes by garbage collectors have left over 5,000 tonnes of rubbish on the streets, which also happen to be set on fire. It's delaying the plans of one particular pensioner who's still in work, King Charles, who was due to meet Macron on a state visit. Arthur, the British are a nation averse to protest and still deferential to a monarch. French attitudes could not be more different. Just ask Louis XVI. Progressives here often long to be more like the French. But has French rebelliousness been more effective in modern times? What did the Gilets jaunes, for example, actually achieve? I can't No, they, Well, the Gilets jaunes, they, they were campaigning against a, fuel, a rise in fuel duty and they got what they wanted. So I think um, uh, sometimes it works in France. And, and um, it's interesting, you know, Macron is second term, so he, he's got less reason to back down this time. But he, he backed down last time. Yasmin, among a certain generation in this country, as well as France, there is a creeping suspicion that they will never retire. When people refuse to extend their working years, despite much higher life expectancies, do they condemn their children to forever work? I think that's a big part of the concern in France, that if they let the government extend the retirement age by two years, you know, two years from 62 to 64, well, then who's to stop them from doing it a further two or a further five or a further 10 years? Um, that's a big concern. But I, I think another and equally important concern stems from this very valid question of, you know, will I be able to get a job or keep a job when I'm in my 60s? Um, you know, I was I was listening to reports of, of people who were saying that, you know, that by the time, even before they reach pension age, as it stands now, that that they would would often be sacked um, or replaced with younger workers. Um, but I think perhaps the biggest grievance, well, one of the big grievances, is the manner in which Macron pushed through these reforms. Rather than building a parliamentary majority in favor of the reforms, he instead ran through the legislation by executive decree. Um, now that was very that was constitutionally sound. He used this clause forty nine point three. But many protesters believe that this approach is resoundingly anti democratic. And if there's one thing that the French detest, it's a power-hungry king. So, mm. 
Uh, are we caught in an unsquareable circle, actually, with with majorities in many countries against the sort of taxation that means proper support for parenthood, against imported labor in the form of immigration, against more modest living and less consumerism, and against a higher retirement age. I mean, it seems to me one or more of those things have to give, but all are mm. electorally hugely unpopular. I just don't understand how, the, how we make the math work. The math's not mathing. No, I think it's it's true. Something does have to give. And, and I think that's the, the kind of the argument that Macron's been making. And this is someone who's on his second term. He doesn't have to worry about contesting another election. So he feels that he needs to just push this through, come what may. Mm. I mean, Hannah, on the other side of the argument, um, there is a point of fairness here, right? Population curves are observable decades in advance. It's not like this crept up on us. Is a fundamental part of the resistance the fact that the state is seen to unilaterally impose different terms to the one we signed up for at the last minute after we have already worked for decades and looking forward to retirement 10, 15 years away? We feel cheated if someone comes and says, no, actually, you have to work another five years. I think they do feel cheated. And I, uh, that emotion is perfectly understandable in the way that you've just described, but actually it doesn't make the sums add up. So it doesn't make it an achievable goal that we just say, okay, we stick with the the, the dates that, that you know we have agreed to because actually population curves, they they are observed they are predictable decades in advance, but then they can suddenly change. And we sure. see, you know, we we are actually seeing a stalling now uh, you know in Western nations of of the growth in life expectancy and some places are, are starting to, you know, slipping back. So what happens next then will be fascinating on this as well. Um, I do think that there's also a generational thing that the, there are quite a lot of people out on the streets involved in it, you know, younger people mm. out, out in France. It's not just older people. So they are kind of thinking about their own future. But, but I think among younger people in other Western nations, like here in the UK, there is a, a a kind of fundamental acceptance that we are going to be working until we're 70. So there's a cultural yeah. aspect here too. So what you, you feel like you're entitled to depends very much on the, the culture of your nation. I, I just I just have a feeling, an instinctive feeling that someone being told at age 20 that when you enter the workforce, you will have to work until 65 mm. is a fundamentally different proposition to someone being told age 50 mm. that you're going to have to yes. work until you're 65. Absolutely. Right? Yes. Because at that point you feel well, what's, well, you're changing your so side of the yeah. bargain. Yeah. Um, what about waspy women? Um, well, I mean, they were very clearly I mean, that's behind. a very clear example yeah. of where sudden changes in policy can have dire consequences for small groups of individuals. Um, and the failure to kind of acknowledge that that issue and to, to address it in some way by a kind of uh, an allied policy, a supporting policy to mm. see those women through those that, that small gap in time um, was a failure of government to, to kind of think the, big, uh, the bigger picture. Uh, but I do think that... It, that still doesn't answer the fact that we do have a, a crisis where the numbers just don't add up and politicians do have to grapple with this. Uh, and pretending that they they don't um, isn't, isn't realistic. Hmm. Arthur, there are extensive strikes right now in the UK and Germany, protests in France, Hungary, Poland, Greece, many, many other countries, not to mention that the United States feels like a powder keg, added to which Israel, as we were discussing, seems to be in the early blows of a full-blown civic revolt. Rebellion is infectious, especially in an age of 24-7 global media. We saw that with the Arab Spring. Is a bigger pattern beginning to emerge here? Well, that was, of course, Vladimir Putin's plan, that he would uh, impose extreme cost of living increases on uh, those sort of Western countries, in particular, the ones in Europe that relied on Russian energy, but of course, wider, wider effects as well. Uh, and we we would, uh, as a population, you know, reject the privations associated with supporting Ukraine in the war. It's an interesting question, because of course, no one is very good at predicting when things run out of control, the Arab Spring being a classic example. Yeah, maybe. Maybe we're actually, we thought we were through the winter and therefore 
Putin's pl- plan had failed, but maybe actually the discontents that are rising uh, across Western countries will boil over. Well, it's nearly the end of the show, so it's time for escape routes. What are the things that have been distracting our panel this week? Let's start with Arthur. I've actually been uh, enjoying uh, the various various sort of books of the kind that you always think you should have read and you haven't, because um, I've, I've been unpacking boxes having moved house recently. So recent recently emerged was Dr. Zhivago, and I'm ashamed to say I've never read it, so I'm now just making a start on it. There you know, early, early signs is that it's really quite a good book. And shorter than the film. Um, yes. <laughs> Hannah, how about you? Well, just to bring the tone right down, I don't oh, know if free. anybody saw this, but Channel 4 has a new reality show called Tempting Fortune, which uh, is presented by Paddy McGuinness, and the general thrust of the idea is that A bunch of people, some of them in their 20s and 30s, some a little bit older, are dropped in the South African wilderness and expected to trek between various checkpoints. Uh, And they have to do this. And if they succeed as a big group together, they win a share of 300 grand. But if anyone drops out because they can't hack it, or if anyone takes some of the temptations that they put along the way, including like coffee and croissant or a night in a fancy hotel with a with a kind of affinity pool and a beautiful uh, um, cabana or a trip on a safari for a day out, then chunks of money are taken off this pot. I was just watching this idly for, you know, lazy evening at home. But what ensued was a fantastically gripping debate between them about the value of different experiences to individuals based on their age, their life chances, their own incomes, background and so on. And I would say, ignore all of the kind of assumptions that you're taking about what a Channel 4 reality show of that type is Mm. and maybe go and have a look because the dynamics between them were gripping fascinating okay that's an interesting rationalization of trash yeah i mean it's trash it's trash yes how about you there really isn't a reality con tv concept that this country hasn't tried is (laughs) that was my takeaway um i i will tune into that um as for i mean i i think once you've had a dating show that reveals people's (laughs) genitals before their faces you've sort of you've I'm not going to lie reached, I've seen that a few times you've so. sort of reached <laughs> the end of your dramatic arc as a country I feel sorry um, go ahead yes. no no um, it's true um, yeah as for me um, it's Ramadan currently um, so my escape is n- knowing sunset times by memory um, and eating when I'm allowed. Um, Actually, no, I do have a a good kind of unusual one, which is because I don't believe in gatekeeping, but um, one particular sort of Ramadan dessert that's quite popular in the Arab world is something called Katayef. And I haven't had it in years. And I found it at a Lebanese supermarket called Green Valley near Marble Mm. Arch. Now, if I go and they're completely sold out, I will blame all of you. (laughs) However, I would highly advise that you go and try it because it's just given me so much joy and I'm sure it will for all of you as well. And you can enjoy it in the daylight hours if you're not fast. I mean, I'm guessing that's the same as Kataifi in Greece, which is the angel hair um, sort of... Uh, uh, pastry with oh, syrup and nuts. Slightly different. This that sounds more like kanafa, maybe minus the nuts. Okay. But this is like a pancake that's folded into like a crescent sort of shape, and it's stuffed with either cheese or this like cinnamony ah, nutty mixture. Amazing! I sounds the latter, delicious. But they're both very very good. Well, my my escape routes are very predictable. I'm afraid. Um, the first episode of Succession I absolutely loved, <laughs> including the best line I think ever written for an actor in the world ever, which is when Cherry Jones says, oh, I, everyone is just saying numbers, eight billion, nine billion, what's next? And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? We'll be back on Friday 
Or if you'd like a podcast a little bit earlier, you can back us on Patreon. Don't forget, if you'd like to pick the brains of Ian Dunt, you can tune into Podcasters Question Time exclusively for patrons this Thursday, 30th of March. For now, here's a theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, along with a thank you to our latest Patreon backers. Many thanks for backing the podcast from me to Simon Wheatley, Tom Evans and Christine Hooper. Hello and thanks from me for your support to Liam, Tim Martin and R. Boyd. And a big shout from me and many thanks to Josh Lee, Ann Taylor and David Cottam. And finally, hello from me to Christine Panton, Felicia Chan and Rory Bremner. Surely not. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andreu with Hannah Fern, Arthur Snell and Yasmin Saran. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis with additional production from Katya Tomashevich and me, Alex Reese. Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Thank you.